The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. Today, we will discuss the Texas Tech, Iowa State, and Oklahoma State games. Plus, we will reveal part two of our top 50 football players of the 21st century with rankings 45 to 41. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, before we get started, I just want to encourage everybody to follow our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Look for the Voice of Motown podcast. And that is a separate account from Brad's Voice of Motown account, so make sure you look for the Voice of Motown podcast and the Voice of Motown and follow both of them. Um, Also, make sure to check out our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Um, Follow us on there, rate us. Um, And make a donation if you're feeling generous. Um, Every little bit helps. And lastly, look for Brandon's articles on the Voice of Motown's website and all of their social media accounts. So let's get into it. West Virginia's recent loss to Texas Tech by the score of 60 to 53 put the Mountaineers at a seven game losing streak. Similar theme for our Mounties, strong first half, even had a six point lead going into intermission only to be outscored by 13 points in the second half. Defense definitely had its issues at certain points, but the Mountaineers lost this game because they went ice cold in the second half, going four for 32 from the field. I had to check that stat several times because I couldn't even believe that was accurate. Four for 32 in one half. I know West Virginia is a low percentage shooting team, but what is happening, Brandon? That stat is abysmal. Oh, it's terrible. And, you know, you look at kind of the disparity of where teams are getting their points, and we've talked about this over and over again. But if you look at the shots at the rim for the whole game, WVU shot 5 of 15 at the rim, um, but they allowed Texas Tech to go 14 of 25. Um, When you're making the shots that you're taking more difficult and the other team are getting those high-volume, high-conversion rate chances, you know, it, it just makes those points easier to come by and even though we did go you know four for 15 or or whatever it was in the second half you know a lot of that is because of our offense where it seems like the desired outcome of the system that we run is to get a contested jump shot um and that's just that's just not good yeah yeah I mean it was ugly they were missing Tash Sherman who's averaging almost 19 points per game I'm sure that had something to do with it but you know all teams go through um, bumps in the road like that at this point in the season. So you got to make up for that. Polly Polycap started in his place and they just started off the second half terrible, going one for 14 to begin the second half. And, you know, it seemed like all of their scoring was coming from free throws after halftime. So, um, I mean, but once again, it seems like the same issues. They were playing aggressive underneath on offense and defense early in the game. And I feel like I say this every week, but they they start aggressive underneath on both sides of the court. But as the game goes on, they just seem to start giving up those easy buckets by the hoop. They settle for too many jumpers or when they do shoot a lot in the paint, they they can't make a darn shot. So it's really old 
seeing our opponents score 30 plus points in the paint while we can barely reach double digits game in game out. And at this point, I don't know how they fix this issue and I don't even know how they work around it. So what are your thoughts? Yeah. So I think the solution is we play less big, give bigs less minutes and, you know, play more guards, play smaller. Um, And the reason I say that is because the bigs aren't really helping us at all. So during this seven game span, I went through and I looked at the combined output of Polly Polycap, Damon Kerrigan and Isaiah Cottrell to see what they're what they're providing for us. So combined, this is all their stats combined. Just want to clarify that because it might be a little bit of a shocker. These three are combining 35 minutes a night. So that's about a whole game, um, all the minutes that they're playing. And they are averaging six rebounds, two blocks, 5.6 points per game, two shots at the rim per game, and 25% on those attempts. They also have a net de- defensive box plus minus of negative uh, of uh, positive 2.7, and that measure, measures the dif- difference per 100 possessions in points allowed with a player on the court versus off of the court. So, you know, during those seven games, they provided a positive 2.7 across seven games, 35 minutes a night. Um, and it just kind of goes to show that they're just out there taking up space because they're big. And, you know, I love that Huggins wants to play physical. He wants to play more defensively, but by having those three guys who offensively don't provide anything and defensively can have nights where they just get exposed completely and neither of them rebound particularly well and playing them that many minutes a night, it doesn't help our offense at all because, you know, looking at what Gabe does well, he does well attacking the basket and, you know, well is maybe a little generous at times, but he's, good at attacking the basket. We have some guys who can shoot. Um, So you need to give Gabe some room to create. And I never thought that, you know, I would be saying that sentence coming into this season, but you need to give him room to create because he's being aggressive and he's one of the few guys being aggressive. Um, And you still have McNeil and Bridges and those guys can, you know, hit jumpers. So um, having those extra big guys in the paint just clogs everything up. And, you know, again, like I said earlier, where, the desired outcome is contested jump shots because no one's getting open. And part of that's because of our spacing, which is terrible. Yeah. I think the most shocking stat you just told me was they're only averaging two shots per game around the hoop. I mean, what are you, what are they doing? I mean, that that's yeah. what you get a big guy for is to score around the hoop. They're not even attempting enough times to be a factor. And uh, I heard Hugs talking in his press conference today that he actually wants to play more two big guys at the same time. And he just hasn't been because they haven't been playing well. And so, um, I mean, yeah. So, so what do you do? I think you're right. You just do the opposite. You unclog the middle and allow your smaller guys to maybe have wide open lanes because Gabe is playing a lot better on offense this year. Although, you know, he's still limited in what he can do. He has improved a lot, so credit to him for that. And since you brought up the bigs, you know, what is Cottrell doing lately? You know, you and me on this podcast have been saying, play more, he's only going to get better. But he does a lot of head-scratching things when he's out there. This past game, he allowed a, a wide-open three because he completely abandoned his man. And, you know, sometimes there's confusion out there, so... 
that happens. But then immediately they go to the other other end of the court and he puts up just a horrible shot in the corner that, I mean, it had no chance of going in. So, you know, he, he's out there, but he's just doing stuff that's making him get pulled. And I don't really remember him playing much more after that because I'm sure Hugs saw what all of the fans saw. And, you know, it's frustrating. So, and the most concerning thing for him is I'm really not seeing him improve on the offense or defensive side of the ball. So, you know, what do you suggest you do? Do you give him more significant minutes so he gets better because none of the other bigs are playing well? Or do you lower his minutes because he's kind of a liability at times? Yeah. I, you know, I suggested last episode where, you know, you kind of give him like a, a heat check whenever you put him in the game. And if he seems to be performing well, you play him a little bit longer. Um and if he's struggling, you know, you got to pull him quick. Um, and I, I think that's the way the rotation needs to be is, you know, you have Gabe as your primary big man. He can't play 40 minutes a night. You know, he's going to get into foul trouble. But you can have one of those other three, whether it's Polycap, Kerrigan, Cottrell, even a Conquo at this at this point, um, filling in and taking those minutes and just playing the hot hand. Who's playing better? Who's scoring? Who's grabbing boards? Who is taking advantage of their matchup? I mean, when you have four guys to, to cycle through, might as well. I mean, because Gabe's right now the only constant big man. And, you know, yeah, he's only six seven, six eight. But last game, you know, the Texas Tech game showed how good he could be defensively. He had, what, 13 rebounds, five blocks. He was incredible. Um, you know, he only shot one for eight. But defensively, he was one of the sole reasons why we were staying in that game. Um, so he has to play. But, you know, those other four big men, you don't have to play them. You don't have to be big because, you know, uh, another thing stat that I wanted to point out too is that teams are still shooting 63% at the rim on 24 attempts per game during a seven game losing streak. And Polycap, Kerrigan, Cottrell are the big men playing down there. So you're playing these guys for size to protect the boards. We're losing the rebounding margin by an average of 8.5 boards per game. So they're not rebounding. They're not protecting the rim. They're not scoring inside. So other than being six foot eight or taller. Why are they out there? Yeah. Yeah. It's getting frustrating because you see guys like Polycap and Kerrigan and they, they look like they're imposing figures, but you know, it's just not showing up on the stat sheet. Um, one, one thing I thought was really strange this past game against Texas tech was Jalen Bridges. He had a huge first half scoring 16 points, but then goes zero for three in the second half after going five for eight in the first had zero second half points and that's just unacceptable, especially in a game with no Taz. Uh, you know, I've said it all year. I think Jalen is our second best, if not first, sometimes best scorer on the team. And, and there's just no way he should only be putting up three shots and a half. Again, when Taz is not even playing, there's no way Hug should be, you know, allowing that. He should be calling timeouts, encouraging him, hey, put the ball up, put it on the floor, take it to the hoop, make something happen. And then a half when your team can't buy a bucket. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Jalen Bridges, I, I still think he's the most talented guy on the roster, not named Gabe Osaboyan. And honestly, on talent alone, he probably has more talent than Gabe because Gabe is 40% talent and 60% heart. You know, he's so good because he just hustles so much. And I, I don't know. I've just said it the entire season. Jalen Bridges is capable of putting up 20 points a game. And I don't care what his shooting percentage is. I, I want him putting up 15 to 20 shots a game when Taz isn't playing. He's just too talented to be a secondary player and afterthought. And his confidence just needs a shot in the arm. The talent's there. 
I just, it's just the confidence is lacking. Yeah, I agree. And I think some of it too is, um, you know, just him not getting to his spots. Um, you know, his three point shot hasn't been as great these past 10 or so games. It's really dropped off a cliff and he's really done well attacking the rim. Um, you know, scoring on back cuts, that whole thing, getting to the line. And I think that becomes harder too, when you have someone like a, again, with the big men, a poly cap, a Kerrigan or Cottrell clogging up the entire middle of the floor. So when you're going for there to attack the rim, to get an easy bucket or to draw a foul, you have someone coming from the backside for the block and it makes your life that much harder. Um, so, you know, just kind of that hurts your confidence a little bit too, especially too, because defenses can sag off you sag off certain players on the perimeter and cheat over to the shooters. And when you're only playing bridges and McNeil, basically who can shoot, then you have three guys who can, you know, if someone's playing on the perimeter, they can sag off them, help, help onto McNeil, help onto bridges. And then you have the whole offense gummed up just by helping off of one or two people because there's zeros on offense. And it's just so frustrating because, you know, I don't know what the, the outcome is with playing, you know, three, defensive specialists at the same time and i'll get naketi here in a minute um for huggins because you're not going to hold a team to zero points you're not going to hold a team to 30 points you're not going to hold them to 40 um so what's the game plan you got to find a way to get the the ball in the bucket and the rules are more attuned to protect the offensive player than the defensive player anymore so you got to take advantage of that it's an offensive game and i know the big 12 is still kind of low scoring but Still, you know, you have to produce offense. Look at Kansas, um, you know, with how electric their offense can be at times. And, you know, Texas Tech has guys who can go off at times. Um, if you want to be a truly elite team, you have to score. Yeah, Hugs even brought that up in his conference today, too. He said, you know, the reason that Final Four team was so good is because they had uh, Wendell Smith, who was a big but could score and so he would have five guys on the floor all at once who was a scoring threat and that really opened up lanes and that is the issue I mean we got one or two guys on the floor at any given time who can score and that's it uh you know that's a huge issue and I don't I don't know if that has to do with recruiting or what it is you would think if you made it this far um <laughs> that that you would be a you know at least a semi-scoring threat out there but it seems like some guys are just zero factors at scoring um and that that brings up sean mcneil you know he was also contributing and making up for taz's scoring production in the first half but even though he had seven second half points his shooting percentage went way down in the second half and it it just wasn't a very good half for him i I, i've said it all along sean is a guy who's got to be your second third scorer he can't be your number one guy to count on for points because I'm not sure he's capable of doing it on his own. He's more of a catch and shoot type of guy or one dribble shoot. And so, um, you know, I don't know how to get him going when Taz is out. I will say the one thing I liked about McNeil is he doesn't do it very often, but when he attacks the rim, it's actually not that bad of an outcome because he's a pretty solid finisher. And if he gets fouled, he's a really good free throw shooter. Um, it's just that he settles for those pull-up jumpers so much where he's sitting there dribbling, trying to get a space, get to his spot and jump. And defenses know that now. And especially when, like, you know, you said before, you only have two shooters out there. Um, you know, those jump shots aren't going to be there. Um, and, and some of it, too, is just the structure of the offense that, you know, where the offense is so 
not modern. Um, it's antiquated. You know, we're, we're settling for mid-range jumpers way too much. Um, so I pulled some stats on that. Um, you know, we don't move the ball well. We don't put up a lot of threes. We're actually 283rd in the nation in three-point rate. Um, we are 326th in the nation at assist rate. Um, we have the 57th highest um, percentage of long twos out of any country a team in the league. And we are the 85th worst team in the country at shooting close to two. So, yeah, all those things that you need to succeed as a modern day offense, you know, we're struggling and the things you aren't supposed to be doing, we're doing in huge volumes. And some of that is Sean McNeil's game. You know, I, I would like to see him try to draw more contact. I would like to see him more, be more aggressive getting to the lane, you know, both him and bridges. Um, and again, some of that is because we play too many big men at the same time who don't, provide anything so it clogs up things and you really can't attack the room as much but you know i think that's what mcneil needs to do because teams aren't going to let him shoot from three unless it's a contested shot and while he can make those pretty consistently when he gets hot teams aren't letting him get into that rhythm yeah and um you know hugs brought the brought up the fact and it's something you know fans have been saying all year we don't really have a true point guard who can distribute and and help these guys get open and make buckets and you know it, it's always been the question all year do you play Keedy or do you play Malik more and I just don't know because it seems like when Malik's out there at least we have a bigger scoring threat compared to Keedy Johnson but if you look at the plus minus for that game Keedy was a plus two one of the few guys on the team who was even in the positives and then you had Malik Curry who ended the game being a minus nine leading the team in that category with Kobe. They were both minus nine. So um, what do you do at point guard? I would cut Keddie's minutes significantly. Um, I, you know, maybe 10 minutes a game, if that. Um, so I looked at his last seven games during this lo- losing streak and his stats aren't, aren't good. Um, you know, 1.3 assists per game, 1.3 steals per game uh, for a point guard. That's, pretty low while also averaging three turnovers per game. And he's had some games where he's turned the ball over four or five times during this stretch. And that's not good, especially for your point guard. Um, I also looked at his box plus minus and his average box plus minus during the seven game stretch was minus 4.4. And his average defensive um, score was one. Um, So defensively he's producing at an above average rate, but Overall, his offense is so bad. His turnovers are so bad. I don't think that the defense that he brings really outweighs it. Um, And just for comparison, I looked at Curry because there's not going to be enough stats on Kobe or Seth Wilson to kind of do a comparison. But during those same last seven games, Curry was averaging 0.7 assists per game, so about half. 0.6 steals per game, about half again. But 1.1 turnovers per game, so about a third. Um, He's not playing as many minutes as Keddy, so those numbers could probably go up if he played a similar amount of minutes, but you know, his defensive score isn't as isn't significantly lower than Keddie's either. He's um, his average defensive box plus minus for the past seven games has been 0.8. So a 0.2 difference from Keddie. Um, so I just don't see the value in, you know, hugs, I guess, trying to shove Keddie down our throats because I just don't think he's, providing that value. And we have so many young guards, you know, again, it's one of those positions where you could cycle in and out and just figure out who has the hot hand. Yeah. Um, 
I kind of agree with you, and I kind of don't. I, w- I would probably play Malik more than uh, Kitty Johnson from here on out because I do think Johnson's a great defensive player, but you bring up a good point. I'm not sure his good defense outweighs where he's lacking so much on offense because, um, you know, our defense has been decent these last few games, but we're still on a seven-game losing streak. So you got to start focusing on offense at some point. So I'm with you there. And uh, that kind of leads me into the next topic about playing other guys. So Konku got some uh, playing time in the second half against Tech, but only four minutes on the court. Um, I, I like the fact that we're seeing young guys on the court here and there. I'm pretty sure that burned his red shirt. But in this day and age, I think I'm okay with that. Kids come and go in the transfer portal. So I don't think keeping a red shirt is as important as it used to be. Um, Wilson plays in some games, but then he doesn't. So I, I kind of think that's a head scratcher too, but I, I think coach Huggins is in a weird spot right now because West Virginia is in most of these contests all the way up until the very end of the game. So Hugs is playing the guys he thinks can give them the best chance to win, but we keep losing and the, and the same guys keep playing. So it's, it's a tough spot to be in, but something has to change or, or, you know, or do you just keep doing the same thing since the schedule's getting, you know, slightly, and I do mean just slightly easier. Not every game is going to be against Baylor, Tech, and Kansas anymore, um, like it has been. Five of our seven losses on this losing streak has been to those three teams. So out of those three teams, you only have Kansas one more time. And that's not to say Iowa State and these other teams are bad. You know, they're very talented. But West Virginia's odds increase against this bottom half of the conference. So what do you do? Play the young guys or do you keep putting the guys you count on and hope we're going to get some wins? See, I I think there's four guys who deserve to be on the court 30 minutes a night. And I think everyone else, you know, you well, you have McNeil, Taz when he's healthy, Bridges and Gabe. Those four, I think you have penciled in for 30 plus minutes a night. No questions asked. They just come in for breathers here and there, foul trouble, whatever. I think those other minutes, those 40 minutes from, you know, the the forward and guard positions, plus all 40 minutes at the point guard position are up for grabs. You know, you just, whether it's a young guy who wants to take it, whether it changes game by game, do whatever you want. But I, I think, you know, you do have to kind of play around with things a little bit because we always hear these good things about, you know, Seth Wilson in practice. And, you know, we heard Jamel King coming in was a sharpshooter. Um, which we could use, and Okonkwu has been impressing in practices and, and all these other things that we've heard. But from the performances that we're seeing from the people who are playing, someone who's impressing in practice, who's someone who's leading the second team to beat the first team, which Huggins alluded to last week, I believe it was, um, why aren't those guys getting more minutes whenever the guys who are getting minutes over them aren't producing? And they're worse than zeros, they're negatives. Um, you know, even if it means that you just start the game and every five minutes you sub someone else new in to figure out who's got it that night, I'm okay with that. You just gotta, you gotta take chances. Um, you know, and maybe the safe thing is, is continue to do the same thing and tweak things here and there, which I think is what Hug's been doing. But, um, the safe thing isn't going to get us into the tournament at this rate. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, uh, yeah, I'm 100% with you. Just go with the hot hand. You have those guys who have to get their minutes, but you know why not have a little friendly competition for all those other spots? 
Um, and I do understand that WVU won't always have the same level of talent as their opponents. Uh, we're not always going to be the bigger school. You know, these other teams have more money, more recruiting power. So there are times that we won't have the superior talent on court. You know, but uh, I will say one positive thing that I've been seeing is the players seem like they're giving max effort these these past few games. And so um, at the end of the day, that's all you can really ask of them, I guess. Losing is never exciting, but at least these players seem to be leaving it all out on the court lately. Oh, for sure. I I think defensively, the hustle has been incredible, Um, you know, maybe even to the point of the detriment to the to the offense where you're just tired um, and your legs are dead. Um, but that makes it even more important to get guys out there who can provide that jolt of energy, you know, and if that means you have five guys coming off the bench, that are playing 10 minutes a night because they have fresh legs and they can give you five points, whatever, you know, you got to get figure out how to get those extra five to eight points, which we've been losing basically every game by. Um, and right now we haven't seen that guy yet. So, you know, it could be anyone. Yeah. I'm with you. And and that leads into the next thing. Um, Sinny Najai announced that he's transferring or entering the transfer portal. And, you know, you know, some fans are always going to jump down everyone's throat when they see another guy transfer. It's not like, you know, Sinny or, you know, Thweet who, who transferred out a few weeks ago. It's not like these guys were stars, but my concern is this roster is going to be absolutely empty next year. And Hugs is going to have to go hard in the JUCO and transfer portal next year. That didn't exactly work out this year doing that. So to me, I'm not concerned that, you know, we're losing this talent because we don't know how good those players would have been. I'm concerned that we're going to come back next year with a bare roster and then just have to bring in a bunch of new guys who have to learn how to play together once again. Yeah, and, and Huggins needs to be a little bit more proactive going into the season too to bring in some of those transfer guys. I know he alluded to what Oklahoma did and I think he recognizes his issue. Um, There's an interview I heard. I couldn't find the link to it today to, to reference it, but it was about how Huggins said that a lot of the times when they're taking transfers, they're taking transfers that reach out to WVU that want to come to WVU. They're not going out and recruiting them like they would a normal recruit. Um, So that's something that's going to have to change because like you said, we have, I'm looking at the roster now, three, four, five, six, seven seniors, unless I'm missing one here at the bottom. Yeah, seven seniors. Um, I think only McNeil can come back, maybe Ketty. Um, so technically five seniors. It's confusing. Um, but, you know, that brings back Bridges, Cottrell, Kobe, Jamel King, um, Akonkwu, and Seth Wilson. Um, so you have some guards, you have some bigs, you have a wing kind, you have a couple wings, but you really need to add depth and you need to add some star power to that because as we've already seen with Bridges, um, and if McNeil doesn't come back, you know, can Bridges carry the team next year? Um, it could be a really bad year. So um, I think it's a, this is an interesting season for Huggins because it kind of could and should probably change his perspective on a lot of things you know, offensive schemes, how he produce, how he brings in guys in today's NCAA, you know, instead of recruiting recruits, you got to recruit transfers. Um, and I know some of these things make him cringe a little bit because he's, he's a very loyal guy. He doesn't like seeing people move around a lot. He doesn't like seeing fans disappointed. He doesn't like hurting relationships with coaches by, you know, someone's in the portal. I'm going to go recruit him and try to get him to come to my team, even though he could still go back there. 
Um, you know, he has a lot of integrity, but integrity really doesn't matter anymore in this day and age. And it's a shame to say, but the times are changing and um, hopefully Bug, uh, Bob Huggins can adapt. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 100% with you. In fact, the, you know, in his conference today, he was kind of saying how this is somewhat ruining the game because you're not getting guys like uh, Joe Alexander or Butler who are just there for four years and then seem to blossom those last couple years there in college because it's pretty rare a kid sticks around for four years at one school anymore. So it is kind of a shame. And, um, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if this makes, I'm definitely not rooting for it, but I wouldn't be shocked if this makes Bob Huggins retire earlier than he originally planned. Like if you would ask me two years ago, how much longer we'll have Huggins, I would have said, you know, we, we still got plenty of years with them, but with all this new, you know, rules and moving around, I could see an old school guy with an old school mentality like him kind of getting sick of it after a few years and maybe, you know, he'll dip out three years before he was originally planning on it. Yeah, I could see that too. And, you know, that, that'd be a shame. Um, you know, I think Huggins could thrive in this environment because there are people who are in bad situations where they're currently at, where they were lied to by who they are recruited by their coaches have left you know, maybe they just don't get along with someone or maybe they have someone in front of them who they just can't get minutes behind. And I think Huggins could be the right guy to help fix a lot of people's career trajectories. Instead of him thinking of it as stealing another coach's players, you know, maybe if he thinks of it as, you know, helping a player reach their true potential, um, it could get him to stick around a little bit more, but it's, it's tough. I mean, it's completely different. I mean, the past three years, if that have been completely it's completely changed all of college athletics. So, um, you know, Coach K is retiring and Huggins might be soon after. And then you have Boheem still going at it, but how much longer he's going to be going around. Um, it's really interesting because I think a lot of these older coaches, um, besides like Calipari, um, you know, are against kind of this whole new thing. Yeah. Yeah. Even as a fan, it's kind of hard to get used to and wrap my head around. I'm still kind of getting used to that guys can just leave as easily as they can now but uh i hope hug sticks around i mean he's smart enough he's a good coach that um i think he'll figure it out you know a lot of fans were upset with them back with the isa Ahmad days and how that team was a mess and he just dismantled it and built them back up and we had some really good teams with culver and deuce so uh no doubt in my mind he'll do the same thing for sure Um, So that leads us to our next topic. Some of the players took to social media to voice their displeasure with West Virginia's fan base saying, um, you know, they they are all they got. Basically saying Mountaineer fans don't have their back. I saw Keedy and Jalen Bridges make statements and we've seen Taz, you know, say several things throughout the season. So what are your thoughts on that? I I think, you know, the, the loudest voices in the room are the ones who's heard the most. And, 90% of Mountaineer Nation aren't mad at the players for losing. Um, But it's those 10% who are on social media, media, adding people, direct messaging people, just doing stupid stuff um, that gets in these players' heads. And unfortunately, that's how they're being represented. And these people don't kind of understand that. They think that they're venting their frustrations and providing criticism and it's going to make them play better or something stupid and doesn't make any sense thinking wise. Um, But 
it's just a bad thing. Like, you know, you can talk to your buddies about it. You can, you know, complain about a player while you're watching the game, but you know, at the end of the day, they're still college kids and you don't need to be calling them out. Um, especially in today's day and age of transfer portal, if you get a bad rep as someone who's rude to your players, I mean, how are you going to get new players to come in? Um, especially when people are being vocal about it. Now they may be overreacting a little bit. Um, part again, I think it's a smaller segment of the, the larger Mountaineer nation than they're aware of, but that's what they're aware of. And, you know, at games, whenever you're losing seven games in a row, you might hear some boos, but that's any sporting event in the world. You know, if you're losing seven in a row, you're going to get booed by your fans. I'm not against that. It's part of the game, but attacking people, calling them out on social media, that's crossing the line. Yeah. And I agree with you. In my opinion, we definitely have some fans who take it too far just as every fan base has, you know, I think the majority of fans still tune in, still attend games, still support our team, players, and coaches. It's okay for the fan base to voice their opinion, like you were saying. Um, you know, they're entitled to do that when the team is struggling. Having said that, I don't approve of everything they say. Sometimes it goes too far. Sometimes they directly contact players. And we've said several times on this podcast that we just don't condone any of those actions. Um, you know, it's low class and it's not the right way to voice your concerns. I do also think the players need to toughen up a little bit. You know, I understand they're still young and it's hard to behave like a pro when you're, when you're still in college, you know, but you know, fans are going to be frustrated. And I'll say this, these last few games, like we said, the players have given 100%. At least that's what I'm seeing. They appear to be playing their hearts out. And when the game is over, you know, they gave it. They're all to win the game for their teammates, for their coaches, for the school, which represents the state that we love. So just because players are making mistakes or missing shots does not mean they don't care um, or they aren't trying. Fans need to be honest with themselves. This wasn't a team that was going to contend for the conference championship this year. Not in the regular season, at least. Now, I think anyone who thought that coming into the season's crazy. So, you know, what are your thoughts with some of these fans who just have unrealistic expectations? I, I think, um, you know, as a WVU fan, you want to see them win it all. You know, every every game they go into. Um, I think some of the frustration grows because of the way that we're losing, whether it's just not scoring at all, having a lead and then blowing it. Um, even whenever we're down by double digits and we come out and squeak a win, all of that kind of adds to the frustration. Also with the players, they're frustrated too. They want to win. They don't want to just make four baskets. I mean, people play basketball to score points. If you don't want to play to score points, you can go play soccer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you, you know, it's just a terrible situation. I mean, think of like when you come home from work and you've had a bad day at work and your wife's had a bad day at work and your kids have had a bad day at school, it's just kind of, you know, just something can set someone off that just ends up, you know, blowing things out of proportion constantly. Um, so that's kind of the situation we're in now where the fans are frustrated because they have expectations. Um, maybe some people have way too high expectations. Um, then you have players who obviously have expectations. You have players like Taz who aren't able to play right now. Um, that's frustrating for him. You know, the coaches are frustrated. Everyone's frustrated. So people are a little bit more touchy. Um, the fans are probably more touchy about some of these losses. So, you know, they make it seem like we should be winning five of the last seven games, even though that's probably not realistic. And the players are frustrated because they don't want to get that criticism because they know they need to win more.
Um, it's just a really bad situation to be in. It is for sure. And, and, and that leads me into what I wanted to talk about next. You know, I thought this team was capable of 20 wins when the season started. That's, that's what I said on our, uh, predictor show a few months back and it's starting to look like they they might not even reach that mark i i think you know 16 to 18 wins is where they will be when it's all said and done maybe they reach 20 wins with some conference tournament games or postseason play but um you know how many wins do you think this team can reach and will it be enough for the ncaa tournament because keep in mind taz did not practice on monday yeah, it's going to be tough. For some reason, I feel like tomorrow the Iowa State game should be pretty winnable. Iowa State's kind of been up and down. Um, I think we're kind of seeing more the team that a lot of people thought they were. Um, I think they're a little high, higher rated than what they actually were, should have been earlier on in the season. Um, Oklahoma State, Kansas State, those are pretty winnable games. Um, so if we can go three and zero these next three, I could see us winning. There's four, five, six. I think we could get to 19 wins, um, and that's if we beat Texas at home. Um, but I don't see us beating, you know, Iowa State twice. I'm not sure if we can beat Oklahoma just because of the way that they handled us so well. Um, and Oklahoma has been tough this year. I think they've, you know, surprised me. Um, I think we should beat Oklahoma State. I think talent-wise, they're probably the worst team in the conference. In Kansas State, I think as long as we don't shoot ourselves in the foot, that's a game we should win because they don't really have any other advantage other than, you know, being a volume three-point shooting team. So whether they get hot or not um, is really going to determine that game. So I'm going to say 19. That's a little optimistic. Um, So maybe 19 is a ceiling, and then we have to win a game in the tournament to get into the NCAA tournament. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be close. Um, We can just dive right into it. So we're going to preview the next couple games. So the Mountaineers have Iowa State on Tuesday and Oklahoma State on Saturday this week. Iowa State, they're 16 and 7 and 3 and 7 in conference play. They're on a two game losing streak to Kansas and Texas. The Kansas game wasn't particularly close. In the Texas game, Iowa State took a page out of the Mountaineer playbook. They played tough for about three-fourths of the game, and then they completely collapsed in the second half. They lost by 22 points when it was all said and done, and and that was a close game. Um, You know, until with about 10 minutes left, I don't know what happened. This is a team that was ranked as high as eight at one point in this season, and, uh, you know, they are now ninth in the conference after losing seven of their last 11 games. Still a very talented team, but West Virginia is at home on Tuesday. Hopefully the Mountaineers can end the losing streak with a win over 20th ranked Iowa state. Yeah. And I think with Iowa state, you know, they, they came out of the gates hot and kind of doing their own thing. And I think they've been figured out similar to what WVU did. Um, Like you said, three and seven in big 12 play. You know, and if you look at their non-conference schedule, which they tore through, they were undefeated in non-conference play. They played some really good teams and they won those games. Um, they have six wins against quad one opponents. They also have six losses against quad quadrant one opponents. Um, so they're a tough team. It's just, you know, can they adapt and change just like WVU does? So it's another one of those interesting matchups to kind of see, you know, what ends up 
pulling through um, because Iowa State really needs to get back on track. If they lose this game, they're out of the top 25. WVU needs a win in any way, shape, or form. Um, so, you know, immovable force versus, a, you know, unstoppable force versus an immovable object. What's going to give here? Um, they do have some solid players, but it seems like their offense is heavily driven around Isaiah Brockington. Um, he seems to be their entire offense, almost 17 points a game, nearly eight rebounds a game, shooting about 47% from the field, uh, 35% from three, 81% from the free throw line. Um, he's six foot four, um, but he prefers to kind of, even though he can make the three, um, he prefers to score from the mid range and in close, but that's kind of their guy. Um, everyone else on their team is pretty streaky. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the thing is we can't keep dropping these home conference games because it's tough to get a road win in the big 12. And it seems like every time we're at home and we, we always say, here's the game where we can snap this losing streak. They always just seem to have a dud and uh, it's super disappointing. So like I said, Iowa State's no cupcake. They're, they're going to make you earn the victory. But I'm really, really hoping Tuesday night is when WVU pulls it all together and ends this losing streak. Yeah, and the one good thing for us, too, is so far in Big 12 play, Iowa State only has one win on the road um, so far, and that was at Oklahoma State in overtime. Every other road game they've lost. So another thing that lines up pretty well for us. Um, again, we got to go out there and do it. It's not given. Um, uh, the, the kind of key thing to watch for this game. Um, so I went through Iowa state's big 12 play and kind of see, um, if there's any kind of deciding factor, but they are three and one when they make seven or more three pointers in a game. Um, the only loss they had is when they lost to Oklahoma and guess how many free throws they had that game. 10, one. <laughs> One. Oh man. And they missed it. So, you know, if that's a game where, you know, they have some more three free throws, they could have won that one. So I think the goal for WVU should be going in there and we're keeping Iowa state from making seven or more three pointers. Yeah. Well, here's hoping. I mean, we, sometimes we do give up a lot of open threes, but the fact that, you know, they, I guess they don't get to the line a lot either can be really good for us because, um, you know, that's where teams been beating us up lately is underneath where a lot of the fouls happen. Oh yeah. So, um, coming up on Saturday, we got Oklahoma state. They are currently 11 and 11 and four and six in conference play as of Monday night. Um, they were on a four game losing streak before defeating in-state rival Oklahoma on Saturday. And they have the TCU Horn Frogs on Tuesday before returning home to take on the Mountaineers this weekend. This is another team that is reeling a bit. They're three and six in their last nine games. And uh, it would be a great opportunity for West Virginia to get their first win on the road in conference play this season. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Oklahoma State's kind of a strange team. Obviously, they can't make the tournament this year, so they're just playing for pride. Um they beat Baylor, which I thought was surprising. Um, they did lose the WVU 70 to 60 early this year, but that was in Morgantown. Um, so it's a completely different story whenever WVU's on the road. Like you said, we haven't won on the road yet. And Oklahoma State is pretty darn good in the, at home. They've only lost one home game in regulation. Um, they have three wins, one loss in overtime, and one loss to Kansas. So 
they're a team who can upset you when they're at home. And, you know, even though it may not necessarily be considered an upset if they beat WVU, um, it's a tough place to play. And WVU needs to come in with, uh, you know, ready for a tough contest because that 70 to 60 game, um, they were fighting back there at the end because WVU had that game in control for most of the game and Oklahoma State started battling back. Yeah, I'm hoping all of these tight contests that they've had with Tech, with Kansas, with Baylor, I hope it's prepared them for these teams that might, you know, be, have a little less talent. And um, hopefully we can rise above it and go 2-0 and this week because Monday we got, I believe it's next Monday, we got Kansas State. So, um, like you said earlier, three games that are winnable and would really get us back on track because um, – yeah, I know this isn't going to be considered a successful season no matter what, but I really want WVU to make the tournament and they got to start stringing along some regular season wins and hopefully get a win or two in in the Big 12 conference play for us to even have a prayer. Yeah, and I, I'm really hopeful for them to make the tournament too because this Big 12 is a gauntlet. I mean, the games that we're losing, we're losing to teams who are all capable of getting to the Sweet 16 or further this year in the tournament. I wouldn't be surprised to see any one of them in the final four. Um, so I think WVU getting into the tournament, anything can happen because this team, you know, if Tash Sherman gets hot, if Sean McNeil gets hot, if Bridges kind of figures it out, if we can figure out our rotation, I think this is a team that could make a sweet 16 appearance. Now, I don't think we're going to make in the final four or anything, but the pieces are there where we could go on a nice little run and feel good about it. Yeah. Plus the other thing is, you know, we just talked about how we need Juco guys coming in, how we need transfer portal guys to come in. I mean, what better exposure do you get than the NCAA tournament? Everyone watches it. And even though the NIT and those other tournaments can have some fun games, I mean, honestly, who who consistently watches those? Even if you win the NIT, you know, you're not going to get a ton of eyeballs. Whereas if you just make the NCAA tournament and win a game or two, you know, thousands of people have, have seen you play and your name's out there, your image is out there. Oh, yeah. I don't even know what channel the NIT or CBI games are on. So that goes to show you how much I watch those games. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. So yeah, here's hoping you got anything else for basketball. Um, Just a couple more, you know, to get people back familiar with Oklahoma state. So again, Oklahoma state, tremendous defensive team, top 15 in the nation, uh, top 15 at forcing turnovers. Don't shoot the three very much, both 319th in both, three-point rate and three-point percentage. Um, and their two best players were Bryce Williams and Bryce Thompson. Um, Bryce Williams scored 12 points on, I think, like 33% shooting in the first game. So we held him in check pretty well. And Thompson only scored five points in the first matchup. So um, WVU has proven that, um, you know, we can we, we can beat this and stop their best players. Um, but just as a reminder, too, the last win was heavily driven by free throws. Um, WVU shot uh, seven more free throws and they made 95.5% um, in that game. They only missed one free throw, which was incredible because that was the game after a stretch where we were shooting like 60% from the line or something pathetic. So um, that game kind of turned around our free throw luck, but um, I don't know if we're going to go into to Oklahoma state and, shoot 95 and a half percent from the line again yeah probably not that high and 
you know, it just shows how cruel sports can be sometimes. It seems like once we started figuring out how to shoot free throws this year is when our field goal percentage just absolutely plummeted. So sometimes you just can't win. It's true. It's sad, but true. (laughs) Yeah. All right. You got anything else? Nope. Let's uh, let's get into the part that everyone is hopefully waiting for. That's right. All right. Part two, 45 to 41 rankings for the top 50 football players at West Virginia of the 21st century. Coming in at 45, we got Keelan Dykes. Keelan played at West Virginia from 2004 to 2008. After redshirting the 2003 season, he eventually worked his way into the starting lineup as a redshirt freshman and then never gave up that spot. He was a four-year starter who dominated the offensive line and recorded 12 and a half sacks in his career. Sports reference didn't include his freshman sacks, but I'm not going to short you two career sacks there, Keelan Dice. <laughs> um, you know, he was just a stud at West Virginia, earning multiple first team all Big East teams. And that's why he cracks our top 50 list. Oh, for sure. I mean, two first team all Big East in 2006, 2007. Um, you know, he was part of a really stacked defensive line group. Um, two guys that we mentioned in our honorable mention, Johnny Dingle. Scooter Barry were both on that defensive line with them in that um, iconic Jeff Castile three three five stack system. And Keelan was, you know, kind of in the center of it all. He he was tough. He played hard. He didn't get a lot of accolades, but that defense produced. Um, in his sophomore year, WV was thirteenth in points against in the nation. Um, his junior year, they dipped a little bit to fiftieth in points against, so about right in the middle. But his senior year, eighth in points against nationally so a top 10 defense and you you know you look at the names that were on there that we just mentioned plus guys that we'll probably mention later on in our list um you know you can see why that team was so good and that's the team that won that game in the fiesta bowl against oklahoma um and held sam bradford pretty much in check um you know even though they weren't always putting up the pretty stats they were really good as a unit and um keelan was recognized really well for that um, especially with those Big East, all Big East accolades. Um, he did end up signing with the Arizona Cardinals as an undrafted free agent. Unfortunately, he did injure his triceps that ended his rookie se- season and ultimately ended up um, derailing his whole career. But he was a guy that people looked at as a potential longtime defensive tackle in the NFL because of his versatility. Just injuries kind of got in the way. Yeah, I mean, he 04 to 08, he was on some of the best West Virginia teams that, you know, I think ever. Obviously, the major Harris years, you could put them up there. But, you know, those 04 to 08 with Pat White, Slayton, those were some great teams. So, shout out to Keelan Dykes coming in at 44. Oh, Sorry, one second. <laughs> I got one more thing. Um, I got his career highlight. Um, so, uh, against Syracuse in, I believe it was 2007, he had a 19-yard pick six he was the first west virginia defensive lineman to score a defensive interception touchdown since 1981 so that was his career highlight for me that's a stat for you i'd love to see that highlight (laughs) reel it's always fun to see the big guys running in a pick for a touchdown oh for sure especially against syracuse oh yeah 
first and ten. Robinson takes a snap. He looks. He dumps the ball right side, and the ball is deflected. Intercepted by Keelan Dykes. He's inside the 10-5 end zone. Touchdown, West Virginia's Keelan Dykes. I looked up, and all of the ball just, you talk about something just falling in your lap. I mean, it just fell right in my hands. So next thing I know, I look up, and I can see Johnny Diggle like, big man, let's run. So I started running, and man, it was the longest 19 yards of my life. All right, coming in at 44, K.J. Dillon, who played at West Virginia from 2012 to 2015. He became a part-time starter as a sophomore before starting every game his junior and senior year. K.J. was a high-energy guy who could help stop the run. He had 17 career tackles for a loss, and he could cover in the slot. He, he tied for the team lead in interceptions his junior year. And he ended his career with five picks. What do you think about KJ Dillon? He, he was one of my favorite players to watch. I mean, I know our defenses weren't fantastic that year or those years that he was on it, but that safety group, I think, is one of the best safety groups we've ever had. Carl Joseph, Drayvon Askew Henry, and KJ Dillon. Um, Dillon was just so exciting to watch. I mean, like you said, he could cover receivers, he could cover tight ends, he could make plays in the run, and he hit hard. Um, and then when you combine that with Carl Joseph, who would hit pretty darn hard too. Um, it made some, for some really exciting defensive football. Um, and that was, I think, um, under Tony Gibson, he played most of his years and that's kind of when Tony turned it around. Um, and you know, we kind of had some good seasons. We had Skylar Howard at quarterback. I think we might've had a 10 win season in there somewhere. And, you know, KJ was one of the leaders on defense. Um, you know, I felt like Carl Joseph was a little bit more of a soft-spoken guy, but, KJ was electric. I mean, he was always out there getting everyone hyped up, making big hits, um, you know, pro providing some flair. And it, that was always fun to me. Um, and the NFL liked him too. I mean, he was drafted in the fifth round by the Houston Texans. Um, he played one year on the Cardinals practice squad, obviously didn't end up working out, but he did end up playing for the XFL in 2020 for the Houston Roughnecks. So um, still, you know, hanging around football. I don't know what he did this past year. I couldn't find anything on that, but I can imagine that, you know, he's still relatively young enough that, you know, maybe he pops up somewhere again. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, even though the Dana, Dana Holgerson years, you know, we didn't actually have like a defense that, you know, lit up the, the rankings, but um, they had some really fun guys and KJ Dillon was definitely one of them. Oh yeah, definitely one of my favorites. And, you know, one of my favorite moments from him was, um, it was in 2014. I, I don't remember the situation, but there was a play where, um, against TCU where the running back was going through the hole. Someone had him wrapped up by the legs and KJ came through and just laid a big hit, perfect, clean hit, not dirty at all. Announcers. I think it was Kirk Herbstreit was actually commenting on the game was, you know, lauding it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the moments that I'll never forget about him. Yeah, for sure. I, I actually saw that exact play today when I was doing some research, and it was. It was a great hit. Jake, is hammered hard. That was KJ Dillon who just made the pick. Can we go real time here? Can we just take this in? Oh, this feels good. Oh, oh. Didn't feel good for me. All right, coming in at 43, we got JT Thomas. JT was awarded a medical redshirt in 06 and saw action at WVU from 07 to 2010. He started his final three years on the team, and he was the centerpiece for West Virginia's defense during that time. 
He was repeatedly given awards by his coaching staff, like the Whitey Gwynn Award, which was given to the defensive champion for the season, and awards by his teammates even, like the Iron Mountaineer, which is given for excellence in off-season lifting and conditioning programs. And there was even more. I just didn't have time to put them all on there. So, you know, all of his accomplishments were due to his hard work and dedication, which shows in his stats, in his performance. He was the second leading tackler on the team his junior and senior years. and was just constantly a solid performer for those three years he was a starter at West Virginia. Oh, yeah. And the Iron Mountaineer Award, he won that twice. So not just once, twice. He was a workout warrior uh, two-time All-Big East as well. Um, great athlete. I mean, he's a guy who would fly all over the field, sideline to sideline. Um, so, you know, just it, it's always fun to have those type of guys on the field. You know, I know Pac-Man wasn't uh, a linebacker, but he was one of those guys too where you just see him making tackles all over the place. And JT Thomas was kind of in that mold. Um, I think he ended up running like a 4-6 in the combine. Um, but, you know, those defenses were really good too. I mean, I was looking at where we ranked nationally those three years he started 11th, 32nd and fourth nationally in points allowed per game. Um, and having someone like a JT Thomas on your team who is athletic and can zoom all over the field and beat blocks with ease really helps with that. Cause it makes the offensive job offenses job harder. Um, he was also really good in the second half of his career with the NFL. He was drafted in the sixth round by the Chicago bears and early on, it looked like he might not stick around, but then he ended up signing with the Jacksonville Jaguars, played there for two years, started 12 games, totaled 108 tackles during that two-year period, and then signed a nice little deal with the New York Giants um, where he played for a year. I think he signed a three-year deal, but played for a year, got hurt, and then, again, injuries kind of derailed the rest of his career. But six years, not, not bad at all. Um, and you know, the one kind of fun fact I have about him, or a couple fun facts, actually. Um, his father actually played for WVU in the 90s, JT Thomas Sr., from 94 to 95. And uh, a couple cool little stories about him is that, you know, he was active in the special needs community. He took, he got some media attention um, by taking a disabled eighth grade girl in Morgantown to her eighth grade dance um, to, you know, make her feel good. And then he also bought a 14-year-old boy with epilepsy tickets to Super Bowl 46 and attended it with him. So just seems like a really great guy all around. Yeah, 100%. JT, you know, just an absolute beast on the field and stories like that, you know, great human being. And that's why we put this list together. You know, we just wanted to give guys like JT their due for giving up their body, their time, their youth to entertain the state of West Virginia. You know, the guy was an absolute worker and everything he earned on the field was because of his hard work. So I, I feel like that's lost on fans sometimes. you got to give it up for these kids. Absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, me and Brandon were texting earlier. Before we move on, I just want to give a quick shout-out to Morty Ivy, who played around the same time as JT Thomas. And, you know, because he was an absolute beast, too. He almost cracked our top 50. And the more I looked at his stats, you know, doing research on Thomas – he deserves at least a little shout out. So shout out to Morty Ivy. And, you know, if, if you aren't, you know, familiar with him, look up his production at West Virginia guy was an absolute force. Oh, for sure. And WVU, I mean, that's the tough thing about the list is there are so many good linebackers we've had over the years. We're kind of spoiled. Um, we've never really had a problem with finding some, you know, big guy to put in the middle who can make plays all over the field. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Coming in at 42, the only offensive player that we're going to talk about today, Mario Alford. Mario transferred in from Georgia Military College and played at West Virginia from 2013 to 2014. He was an All-American kick returner while he was at West Virginia. Alford had an average junior year before having a great senior season alongside Kevin White. In his senior season, Mario fell just short of 1,000 receiving yards and his 11 receiving touchdowns were tied for the Big 12 lead. But his honorable mention on the All-American team was due to his kick returns, averaging 28 yards per return and taking two to the house for touchdowns, one of which was against Alabama, who made it to the college football playoffs that year. Um, He didn't play at West Virginia for very long, but he definitely had an impact while he was there, and that's why he's number 42 on our list. Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, he was just an electric player. He wasn't, you know, as good as Tavon, but he was just so fast. And um, I think he developed into a pretty good receiver, too. Maybe not necessarily NFL caliber receiver, even though he did play there for a little bit. But, you know, good enough to kind of make some tough grabs. You know, I was watching his highlights today and um, there was a pass where I think it was Trickett threw a nice little fade ball up to him in the corner of the end zone. And he went up and got it. And for someone who stood five, nine, probably in shoes to make that play, that's that's tough. Um, and WVU's always done good with some of these smaller players. I mean, we talked about Jock in our last episode. Um, Mario Alford wasn't much bigger, and, you know, he succeeded really well here. Um, you know, his kick returns were electric and fun to watch, and WVU hasn't always had a great kick returner. So it kind of holds a special place in my heart because, you know, we had Winston Wright this past year, but before him, in between him and Tavon, who was the last guy you know to really think of that could really actually break one loose, that's a long time to go without someone. So um, Mario was great to have. Um, he did play in the NFL for a little bit. He was drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, I don't think he played in any games for him, for them, but he did play for one year with the Browns um, and accumulated 258 return yards on 16 returns in three games. Um, he is still active. Um, he plays in the Canadian Football League now for the Montreal Alouettes. Um, and my career highlight for him I have is the the play that you mentioned, the 100-yard kickoff return against Alabama. And it was great timing there, too, because WVU was down 10-17 to 17, um, with about a minute 43 left in the second quarter. And Alford took it to the house, tied the game up, and unfortunately, um, Bama would drive down the field and kick a field goal before halftime to take a 20 to 17 lead but I just remember watching that game and you know Kevin White had a solid game but just seeing that we were hanging with Bama I think gave me a lot of hope for the season um even though the season didn't turn out particularly well I think we went seven and six but still we we hung with Bama that's all I needed I'm with you and I remember that game well because I always had the opinion after that game that you know you should start with a solid opponent instead of starting your year off with a cupcake team, like so many teams do. Um, I, I really think it sets the tone for the year. But um, yeah, Mario and Kevin White playing together, they were just the perfect complement. You had the speedster, and then you just had the big guy who could go up and get any pass. Um, they were just really fun to watch playing together. Oh, yeah. And I, you know, I think games like that are what get players recognized. And that's one thing that, you know, I've said before that Dana was just so good at figuring out. To ways to get guys exposure um 
and Mario coming in at five, nine from Juco, um, not recruited by a ton of schools. Um, doesn't not the prototypical build, but he ends up playing in the NFL for a couple years and you can thank Dana and his system for that. So um, that was one good thing about the Dana years is that he got offensive players to the league. Here's Alford on the return. And Alford able to shake one tackle. Alford is loose. Look out. Alford past midfield. The race is on. Alford will take it all the way. Touchdown, Mountaineer. Yeah, 100%. Coming in at number 41, another junior college guy, Ellis Langster. Ellis was a junior college All-American return man before transferring into West Virginia for the 07 and 2008 season. He played a little during his junior year before becoming a full-time starter his senior year. He finished his career with four interceptions and played well enough to earn a spot at the Senior Bowl and to get drafted in the NFL. He hung around the NFL for a few years, even pulling down a couple interceptions while he was there. Once again, he wasn't at West Virginia for very long, but uh, he made a big enough impact during his short tenure to make our list. Oh, for sure. Um, and that senior year was special for him. Um, the, the passing defense that year was the 11th best in the nation. They also averaged the 24th most interceptions per game that year. So one of the better secondaries that we've had, and Ellis was a big piece. Um, he also served as kick and punt returner that senior year as well. So that guy was pulling multiple duties and he played well doing it. Um, he returned 20 punts for 171 yards, eight kicks for 195 yards. Um, and he made, like you said, a nice um, NFL career out of it. He played in 29 total games for the Bills and the Jets over a five or six year period. Um, he did have two picks, seven pass deflections, and 72 tackles. Um, he also bounced around in the Canadian Football League, which it seems like uh, is a good home for WVU players because um, everyone on this list, I think, has played in the CFL at some point in time. Um, so, you know, he's had a nice career. And for someone, again, not a big guy, he's only 5'9", um, you know, he, he did well for himself and playing in that nickel role for the Bills and the Jets um, earned himself a nice little um, retirement fund doing it. Um, my career highlight for him is um, more because of his pop culture um, history with the meme. I was like, um, and if you haven't seen the video, I recommend you Google it. It's after a uh, post game press conference. And he says, I was like, um, about, 15 times in three seconds. <laughs> I don't remember that. Um, I, 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 I was just reading, right? So what was it? Yes, sir. How that work? Walk me through that. Like, um... Like um, I just like um, I was like um, I like um, like um, I was on like um, like um, I just like um, I was like um. But uh, yeah, I think I saw that Ellis is playing for the West Virginia Rough Riders. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. These last few years, don't they play down in Wheeling? I thought so. I think so. I think they still do. Um, I didn't know they're not, but yeah, I think they're still there. Yeah. If they're still around, we got to go to one of those games just to see some old players. Because I know like Noel Devine and a few other guys hang out there. Oh, yeah. I think Noel might have played for them mm -hmm. a couple years ago. Yeah. And Angel Estrada played for them for a while, too. And he's not someone who made our list, but uh, he was 
you know, one of our favorites and he actually lives close by to us. So we run into him every now and then. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, but that's it for us guys. That's our list. You got anything else before we punch out? No, just, uh, you know, thanks everyone for listening and, uh, let us know what you think of the list so far and anyone that, um, you might think is coming up in our next list. We'd love to, you know, not spoil anything, but kind of see if you got, if you guys' head are in the same place as ours. Yeah. And if there's anyone that you thought deserved to be, you know, in this bottom 10 of the list, cause obviously you know who some of the guys are, you know, in the top 20, but if you think we're leaving out anyone, you know, shoot us a message on social media and let's have a debate about it. But other than that, thanks for listening. We will catch you guys next week. Bye, everyone.